We started this month by talking about the uh, upcoming community groups. And what I told you is that I was going to be, got one more here in the sanctuary. I told you that uh, for the rest of the month I was going to be uh, training you or getting you ready for those groups. And uh, we've done that by looking at uh, several subjects so far. The first being the issue of time or when Jesus, I believe, will be returning, or at least there's a good chance. The second, we talked about last week, team, and today the final piece you might call terminology. You'll notice at the top of the handout there, the King's Code, that's the title. This is the language I believe that we need to adopt as members of this church. This is what we need to be, in other words, unified in. This is what will set us apart or define us, or in business terms, this is our blue ocean. And uh, in business, that's what you want to be. You want to be in the blue ocean versus the red ocean. You want to be the one who is defining the terms because things are defined on your terms. And so uh, that is what I'm going to attempt to do today is to uh, train you in the kind of language that we need to be using going forward. And let me just apologize at the start by saying it's going to take... (laughs) Quite a bit of time. If you just uh, scan the notes there, I'm back in front. There's a lot of material that we need to get through. Uh, I will do my best to uh, discern what passages we need to turn to and those that I believe that uh, you're familiar enough with that we don't. Uh, but this is again for you, and so this is uh, this document is for you to. Uh, to learn, which means uh, you need to do more than just sit here today and uh, hear what I have to say about it. You need to, to learn the content and how to use the content when uh, speaking to others. So uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, ask the Lord's blessing and jump right in. Father, thank you that we've had time again to, as my brother said, to worship you already here today and as we enter into Now, the high point of that, Father, I pray that you would, as my other brother said at the beginning of our time, that you would give to us attentive hearts and teachable hearts, that we would be able to take what we've learned here and apply it not only to our lives, but to the lives of others for the advancement of your kingdom. And we pray this all in the name of our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, the first thing I'm calling the king's math, how we need to think about various terms and subjects. The king's math. Uh, Christ, what does that term mean? Well, it means king. And I've given you one particular text that I've talked uh, about before. There are others that would uh, demonstrate this, but Luke 23, verses 1 and 2, uh, make this clear that that's what that term uh, Christ uh, most specifically refers to, that Jesus is a king. Hence why we use uh, king language when speaking about Jesus. That term love in scripture, what we need to be thinking of when we think of that term love is loyalty. Hence the reason Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. Obedience demonstrates what? Loyalty. And so that's what he means by love. 
This is a new one. We learned this one, uh, I believe it was last week. You want to be great? You want to be upgraded? That requires sacrifice. Upgrade equals sacrifice. And we saw this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He was upgraded to king of kings, not just king of the Jews, but king of all kings or above all kings because of his sacrifice. The way up is by going down. It's through sacrifice that we are upgraded. Holiness, what does that term mean? It means intolerance of sin. We learn this from places like 2 Corinthians 7.1. And you want to be thinking about how you would use these particular terms with others. You're speaking to someone who claims to be a Christian and you're talking about the issue of holiness. Well, we need to be holy. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're intolerant of sin. That's what that term means. Number five on this list, my king is greater than all other kings, lowercase God's included. Hence the reason Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is truly king of all kings. My king is greater than all other kings. My king's reboot, the new heavens and the new earth, is better than your best life now. My king's reboot is better than your best life now. That's Revelation 21, 1 through 5, where we hear about the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth that is to come, and in this place, a, a place where God will again dwell with man, walk with man again as he did in the garden before the fall, in that place, there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more disappointment. My king's reboot is better than your best life now. Serve the king, what does that equal? Well, savor the kingdom. At least that's what it was for the apostle Paul, Philippians 1, verse 21. For me to live is the king, Christ, and to die is gain. Hence the reason he says by verse 23, uh, I am, uh, Paul says, in uh, essentially a catch-22 situation. Because though I know you need me here, I want to go and to be with the king because that is far better. He savored the kingdom because he knew that's what he would get for serving the king. The king's inquiry Things that we need to be asking others. Real simple. Do you serve the king? Or, I serve the king, who do you serve? Very easy way in conversation with others. I serve the king, who do you serve? Well, according to 1 John 5.19, if you don't serve the king, then you serve Satan. Number two, why would anyone be so stupid as to not serve the king? Another great question to ask somebody. Why would anyone be so stupid as to not serve the king? Only the king can offer a life free from pain. And as I've talked about before, that's ultimately at the end of the day what everybody wants. Pleasure is the antithesis of pain. And so ultimately at the end of the day, everybody wants to 
be free from pain or relief from pain? Well, only the king can offer that. That again being Revelation 21 verse 4 in the reboot, the, the life to come. Never again will we be asked to sacrifice or suffer. Versus atheism or the religions of this world. What a depressing position to be in. I'm an atheist. The only place that I can, uh, according to my system, promise to someone that they will be free from pain is at the time of death, not during life. But in reality, for the atheists and all other religions, going to death just means eternal pain because that's what follows after death. According to Revelation 20 verse 15, when you are dropped into the lake of fire. And so again, why would anybody be so stupid to not serve the king? Third question, one related to uh, the time issue Great question to ask people. What happens to you if the king does return in 2046? What happens to you? I think for most people, if you ask that question, they're going to give you some kind of an answer. What happens to you? Well, maybe they don't know what the Bible says will happen to them. 2 Thessalonians tells us exactly what will happen to them on that day if they're not serving the king. What happens to you? Not far off, 2046, 24 years from now. What happens to you if we're right about that? What if he is returning at that time? What happens to you? Here's what Paul says will happen to you. At that time when Jesus, there at the end of verse 7, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, here's what's going to happen. He will come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. We serve a vengeful God. He repays his enemies. Who are his enemies? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey. Notice that. Who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, those who do serve the king, To be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Great question. What happens to you if the king returns in 2046? What happens? Number three, the king's speech. What I've put together for you is a a list of things that uh, I anticipate to be the kinds of things that you will run into with those claiming already to be Christians, which as we've uh, seen before is the majority of the American population. They claim to be Christian. And so here's some of the things you're going to run into and that you need to be able to address. 
Number one, the king is not your holy toilet. This is what people believe today. These so-called Christians. As long as I confess my sin to Jesus, I don't have to worry about the consequences because he takes care of it. Which means what? He's just my holy toilet. I just flush away my sins in Jesus. The text that's often used to support this kind of thinking, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to not only forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I knew a, a man who uh, wrote that on a little scrap piece of paper and put that on the dashboard of his truck and uh, took a shotgun and uh, killed himself. His understanding of that, uh, that particular verse was, well, even though what I'm doing in killing myself is, uh, is sin, because I've confessed it ahead of time, he is faithful and just to forgive me of what I'm about to do. Here's what the Bible teaches in lieu of that passage, telling us that's not <laughs> what that passage is at all teaching. You continue to practice sin, thinking yourself to be immune to its eternal consequences, and you will be guilty of treating the king's blood as an unclean thing and declared apostate by God. Hebrews 10, 26 through 30, you know the text. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. No longer remains. That section ends in verse 30 with, the Lord will judge his people. Not talking about people outside the church, but those in the church. Why? Because you have trampled underfoot the Son of God and you have treated as an unclean thing His blood. The blood by which you were, as it says, sanctified. You have enraged the Spirit of grace. The King is not your holy toilet. Number two, the King requires more than faith alone. That's the message we hear today, right? Faith alone, that's it. Well, the king, King Jesus, requires more than faith alone. The mantra of the modern-day church is nobody is perfect. As a matter of fact, Chris and I just received a, a postcard. We're getting close to Easter, and so you start getting these kinds of things in the mail, or at least we do, uh, from a, a local church in Centennial saying this, we are a church who likes to say we are not perfect and don't pretend to be. Right? Nobody is perfect. Well, if the king expected perfection, then why did he send his son, or at least why, if God perfected, uh, expected perfection, then why did he send his son to die for our sins? You see how absolutely stupid that is? If perfection is what God expected, then why send his son to die for something that uh, we're not expected to do, sin? Though the king does not expect perfection, that being said, he does expect faithful obedience. In other words, you don't get to heaven on just faith alone. You do not get to heaven on just faith alone. First John, these texts are worth looking at. 
John's first epistle is uh, filled uh, with verses like this. Chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever says, I know him, I'm a Christian, I know him, he's my king, but does not keep his commandments is not faithful, is a liar. Chapter 3, starting in verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, keeps practicing sin. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? The practice of sin. No one therefore born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident, notice that, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love His brother. God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to be faithful. Hence the reason that Jesus can say in Matthew 13, 41, that when the angels come, they will pluck out of his kingdom all those who are workers of lawlessness, unfaithful people, and throw them in to the lake of fire. James chapter 2, verse 24 is probably the best text for dealing with this, uh, this faulty way of thinking. Anytime someone <laughs> says to you that uh, we're saved by faith alone, just take them to James chapter 2, verse 24, and just read these words and then ask them to tell you why what James says here, what God says here is all of a sudden somehow not true. Notice what it says. You see that a person is justified by works and not, not by faith alone. (laughs) The only place in the Bible, the only place in the Bible where we see uh, that term faith and alone together and it's negative rather than positive. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So again, the, the king requires more than Faith alone, no excuses. By the way, we can be faithful. Deuteronomy 30, you know the text, verses 11 through 20. We can be faithful. That's what God says. Can't be perfect, but you can be faithful. You better be faithful. You may not be perfect, but you better be faithful. The king requires more than faith alone. Number three, to have faith in Jesus means you've pledged your complete allegiance to Jesus as the king. I think I spoke a little bit about this uh, last week. To have faith in Jesus, so now we're getting into what that term actually means, faith. Well, here's what it means. It means you've pledged your complete allegiance to Jesus as the king. That's what that term means. To put faith in Jesus Christ or believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation means more than trust or mental assent to who he is, meaning his person as the Son of God or as fully God or deity or the Son of David, meaning that he was also fully man or the Messiah or King, 
or what he has done. He lived a sinless life so as to qualify as our atoning sacrifice and rose again on the third day as proof of God's acceptance and our justification through him. It means more than just mental assent or trust as it relates to those uh, facts. Even though we do see that term being used that way, this term uh, pistis in the Greek being used that way. John eleven twenty seven. Martha here I believe is the one speaking these words. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so that would be an example where that term pistis or faith is being used that way to refer to trust or mental assent to a set of facts. In this case, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. But this term faith means more than just that or includes more than just that. Putting faith or believing upon Christ for salvation also means swearing our complete allegiance to Jesus as our king. In other words, we are now loyal to the precepts of our king. Not the preferences of people. And that includes self. We're now loyal to the precepts of our king. Not the preferences of people. Allegiance was the first century understanding of the term pistis. Translated as faith. And the idea behind belief. Jesus of course lived in the first century. And so what I'm telling you here is that's how they understood this particular term. That was the idea behind uh, faith or belief, was this understanding of allegiance, which means that it referred to more than just, again, mental assent or trust. It implied also loyalty to that thing or person. Uh, This is why in places like Romans 3.3, where it talks about, uh, does our, or Paul asks the questions, does uh, does our unfaithfulness uh, negate God's faithfulness? And the term that is used there, Uh, that is translated as faithfulness is actually this term pistis. And faithfulness, uh, of course, uh, is just a synonym for uh, this term allegiance or loyalty. And yet, uh, the way that it's translated there, in contrast to the way that it's translated in the rest of chapter 3, Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith, same term, pistis. Here it's translated, or rather, back in 3.3, it's translated as faithfulness or uh, allegiance. Matthew 23, 23 also uh, has the same term, uh, pistis, translated that way, faithfulness, again, a synonym for allegiance, where Jesus says, you have uh, neglected the weightier matters of the law, faithfulness being one of those. Examples where translating pistis as allegiance makes more sense given the context. Some examples from Scripture. Uh, John 3.16, everybody knows John 3.16. Let's turn there anyway. John 3.16. We were just talking about this with our company last night. Usage determines meaning, and words will have a particular, we call it a semantic range, meaning that they can mean more than one thing. And so how we determine what that, uh, that particular term means is by its usage in its context. And so with that in mind, we go to John chapter 3, verse 16, and we read these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes, pistis, in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Same context, same conversation, by 30, uh, verse 36 we read this, Whoever believes, here it is again, again uh, this word uh, pistis, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So here now we're being told a little bit more about what 
The author intends by this particular term, uh, believe or pistis, in both 16 and 36. Uh, Well, whatever it is, it has something to do with obedience because he says here the opposite of that, the antithesis of that is to not obey. And so, wouldn't a better understanding of this text or this particular term pistis in this text or both of these verses be allegiance? Think about it. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever shows allegiance to Him or whoever is loyal to Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever is loyal to the Son or shows allegiance to the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey, and obedience is a, what, a demonstration of loyalty or allegiance, the Son shall not see life. I think that's a better understanding of that text, and that, of course, is within the semantic range of this particular term, pistis. Whoever shows allegiance will not perish. Whoever shows allegiance has eternal life. Life. Acts twenty four twenty four. Paul's uh, message in Acts twenty four. <clears throat> Acts twenty four. Here uh, Paul is speaking to uh, Felix with his wife Drusilla, and we're told that he. Uh, Paul spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Tes eis Christon Jesum Pisteos. And there at the end there's our term, uh, pistis. So uh, faith, faith in Christ Jesus. He spoke of faith in Christ Jesus, verse 25, and he reasoned as part of this about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. This, in other words, is how this faith in Jesus manifests itself in righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. Wouldn't a better translation or understanding of that uh, term here translated faith, pistis in Christ Jesus, be allegiance? Because isn't that what is being represented again in verse 25 by righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment? What are we going to be judged based upon? Our deeds, our deeds of what? Allegiance to Jesus. Self-control over our bodies. Making sure that we are living not for self, but for Jesus. Allegiance to Jesus. Which looks like what? Practicing righteousness. Paul preached allegiance to Jesus Christ. Allegiance. Titus chapter 2. Another text by way of example. Titus chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10 here, uh, Paul giving instruction as it relates to uh, slaves in relation to their uh, masters. Doulos are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to obey them. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, 
but showing all good pistis is the term there. Better translation, I think, than faith as it is here would be faithfulness or allegiance. Because again, that is uh, what the context, I think, is speaking to. Again, slaves, employees in relation to their employers or masters in everything, well-pleasing, submissive, not argumentative, not pilfering, stealing from, but instead showing all good allegiance to them, loyalty. Isn't that what those things that uh, he mentions just before that, isn't that what they're describing, aspects related to allegiance? Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, chapter 1 verses uh, 3 and 5, as well as at the end of uh, his address to the Romans, we have this phrase, we've talked about this before, uh, really uh, in 3 uh, he talks about <clears throat> uh, concerning the son who was descended from David according to the flesh, verse uh, 5, sorry here, to bring about, Paul says, I, I have this gospel uh, that I've been sent to preach uh, to bring about, and we have this phrase, the obedience of faith, or the obedience of pistis. And he ends the letter the same way uh, in chapter 16, uh, verses 25 and 26, in the same way. This gospel of mine is to bring about the obedience of pistis, of faith. Well, what relationship does obedience have to faith unless faith implies something related to allegiance? Paul's goal then, his gospel goal, was to bring about the obedience consistent with our formerly sworn allegiance. An example from the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He says this, and I quote, The inhabitants of this city determined to continue in their allegiance, uh, using this term pistis, translated as allegiance. The inhabitants of this city determined to continue in their allegiance to the Romans. According to Dave M. Hay, who actually, well, you talk about a boring book, actually wrote a book on this. Pistis is the ground of faith in Hellenized Judaism and Paul. Uh, he took the time to look at both uh, Josephus and uh, Philo's writing during this time, and he came up with a total in relation to Josephus. 62% of the time when Josephus uses this term pistis in his writings, 62% of the time it refers to allegiance or a pledge of loyalty. Our faith-sworn allegiance or loyalty is viewed by God as a sacred pledge or a binding vow, we know that because of what we read in 1 Peter 3.21 where it says baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Appeal, that term appeal there, literally the term that is used there means pledge or, or, or vow. Sacred pledge, binding vow. A pledge of what? A pledge of allegiance. To Jesus as King. Several uh, authors have written of this, uh, written on this as of recent. Uh, one such book is uh, "Salvation by Allegiance Alone" by Matthew Bates. Again, showing what I've talked about here today. But again, the point is this: to have faith in Jesus, 
means that you've pledged your allegiance in that way to him. That you're promising to obey him. That that's what your life will now look like. And so when someone says to you, well, I've had faith in Jesus, okay, but do you understand what that means? You've pledged allegiance to him. You've taken a sworn vow, a sacred vow, a binding vow. Number four, very similar to this issue of of faith, the issue of grace or the gift of grace, the king's gift of grace expects reciprocation in the form of allegiance. People say, well, it's it's a gift, right? What you're talking about, it sounds to me like a, something that's not a gift. It's a gift and it's grace. What about grace? Right? That's what we hear. Oh, what about grace? What about the gift of grace? Evangelicals are famous for their insistence that our salvation is a gift of grace, which means there are no obligatory strings attached. This, however, is a modern understanding of the term grace and gift. In ancient times, including the time of Jesus and Paul, the ideas of gift and grace, especially when given by dignitaries, always expected reciprocation in the form of allegiance or loyalty. A great book on this, a very groundbreaking book on this, is uh, John Barclay's book. I spoke of this last week. I think I said Paul Barclay. John Barclay uh, wrote a book called Paul and the Gift, about 400 and some pages, uh, where he goes through this and shows this demonstrably so, uh, that this particular uh, term or these ideas of gift and grace are referring to the type of gift that uh, the giver expects the recipient to reciprocate on or to give something back. Ephesians chapter 2 is, uh, I think, a good example of this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Notice, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And now just think of that, that, this idea of faith. Faith is this uh, pledge of allegiance. By grace you've been saved through your pledge of allegiance. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift. This grace that has saved you is a gift from God. The gift of grace, not again as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He did this. This was his gift to us, creating us again or causing us to have new life again, to be born again in Christ Jesus. But notice, unto what? For good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The prepared beforehand works that we should walk in is, of course, speaking about the law, the beforehand prepared law. It tells us the kinds of works that God wants us to be performing. And so putting that all together, God's gracious gift was not conditioned on prior acts. That's what Paul tells us. Not of your own doing. Not as a result of works. It was not conditioned on prior works. But he does expect future performance in return. Good works prepared prepared beforehand. 
John Barclay has an excellent way of uh, describing this. A gift can be unconditioned. A gift can be unconditioned, meaning free from prior conditions, not as a result of our works, so that no one can boast. A gift can be unconditioned without also being unconditional, free of expectations of some return. You see the difference. This understanding of grace or gift is not, by the way, a violation of Romans uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, where it says, uh, anything that is owed to us is uh, not then a gift. Remember, again, this is unconditioned. It's not owed to us, but that doesn't mean that there aren't still strings attached. You see the difference again. It isn't owed to us, but we do owe something back to the one who gave it to us. Number five, a Christian not suffering persecution is not a disciple of the king. A Christian not suffering persecution is not a disciple of the king. When we swear allegiance to the king, when we put faith in Jesus, we also commit to suffer persecution from others as we take a stand for his unpopular gospel. Saw this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as part of that, in verse 29, he says, you have been called not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Why would we suffer? What's he talking about here? Is he talking about the kind of suffering that comes from sickness? No, he's talking about the kind of suffering that comes from persecution when we take a stand as he says there to be unified and to stand firm in this gospel in Christ's very unpopular gospel second second Thessalonians chapter 1 the text that we read uh, earlier the verses just prior to the ones that I read to you uh, there uh, Paul speaks to the Thessalonians who have been suffering in this way and he says that God will bring you relief from your affliction by punishing those who have afflicted you. What makes it so unpopular? Well, I can think of a few things. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Today, in this uh, particular climate that we live in, at least in America, uh, everybody is, uh, worships their children. Child idolatry, and that's considered somehow uh, Christian these days, right? That uh, you can't ever uh, be separated from your children. That's the worst thing that a parent could ever do is to disown their, their children. And yet the only thing ever that Jesus says that he promises to bring a sword in relation to is the family. The only thing. Matthew chapter 10 verse 34. I did not come to bring peace but to bring a sword. And he goes on to say where that sword will divide in homes between parents and their children. This is what would, was prophesied, rather, to uh, his parents by Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verses 34, 34 and 35. That he would come and he would bring division in this way. And for this reason, among others, in John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, they will hate you just as they have hated me. And we see that today. And yet, if you're going to be a Christian, you will take a stand for Jesus' very unpopular gospel, which means you will stand and be loyal to him over your children. 
And the world won't like that. And you will tell other people who do not follow Jesus' gospel, that though they claim to follow Jesus, that they are not Christians, and they will not like that. And because you do that, you will be persecuted if you are being faithful to do that. Which means that those who are living in faithful obedience to their formal, former pledge of allegiance are guaranteed to be persecuted, which is exactly what Paul promises in 2 Timothy 3.12. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You are therefore not a true disciple of the king if you avoid such persecution. You are not. This is the very thing that the, uh, the author of Hebrews speaks to the Hebrews about because this is what was happening. They were beginning to vacillate because of the persecution that was happening. And he says this in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet in a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And think again about what that words mean. He shall live by his allegiance, but if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. Notice, you don't get that option. But of those who have faith, have allegiance, and preserve their souls. Again, you are not a true disciple of the kingdom if you avoid that kind of persecution. If you won't speak the tough words to others. We should count it a good thing when we suffer for our king since this points to us being his true disciples. Hence the reason Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11, Blessed are you when they speak all kinds of evil and unrighteousness against you because of me. Great is your reward in heaven. Hence the reason that James can say in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, Consider it all joy. Whenever you face various trials, and the uh, trials he has in mind are, again, those related to the faith, persecution, family, or the world condemning us for our loyalty to the king over them. Family in the world not understanding our loyalty to the church over them. Blessed are you. But again, are we speaking these words? This is the language, beloved, that we need to be using. You're not a Christian if you're unwilling to suffer that way, if you're avoiding that kind of persecution. A Christian not suffering persecution is not a disciple of the king. Number six, a Christian without a church is not a disciple of the king. We seem to meet a lot of those kinds of people today, people who don't belong to uh, any covenant community. We're not baptized in a particular covenant community, and yet they believe that they are disciples of the king. They believe that they are legitimate uh, Christians. Evangelicals think that this is possible, that you can get to heaven without the earthly covenant community established by our king. How does a person do that when the key for loosing was given to the church, not individuals? We're going to talk more about that here in just a little bit, but in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, the keys of heaven, one of them is the key for loosing, which according to John 21 means 
to forgive someone of their sins. How, how do you do that without the church when those keys were given specifically to the church? See, that's a question we need to ask. In Scripture, baptism where a person is loose from their sins or saved is never recognized as saving when practiced by individuals not authorized by the church. Is never recognized as saving. We have an example of this in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Uh, there Paul, and I can't remember the, the city, if it's Corinth or if it's somewhere else, uh, rolls into a particular city and he finds a, a group of individuals uh, who are claiming uh, to uh, be followers uh, of Christ or they are claiming to be disciples. Yes, it is Corinth. And uh, he asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And no, we've not heard of it. That raises his suspicion. Uh, into what then were you baptized? John's baptism. John was not baptizing for the purpose of uh, salvation. Paul understands then that, uh, and notice in verse 4 he says that, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were not saved. Paul did not recognize them as true disciples of Jesus until they were baptized by an officer of the church. So again, in Scripture, baptism, the place where we are loosed from our sins, is never recognized as saving when practiced by individuals not authorized by the church. The early church believed this. The early church believed baptism as well as the sacrament of the Lord's table was given only to the church and her officers. Two quotes here, the first from uh, the early church father Cyprian. He says this, and I quote, Baptism cannot profit a heretic. And uh, by that, that uh, term heretic, he means this, an individual claiming to be a Christian not recognized by the church. Baptism cannot profit a heretic unto salvation because there is no salvation outside the church, end quote. Second century. Less than 200 years removed, in his case, from the time of Christ, or actually maybe a little bit more than that, not far. What are the chances that uh, he didn't know what, uh, what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught? Even closer to the time of uh, Christ, even closer to the time of Christ, by the way, these are wrong. That should say second century. The first one should say uh, first century. Or rather, no, those are the right. Third century, but lived in the 200s. Second century, lived in the 100s. Ignatius, that's who I'm talking about now, bishop at Antioch, Paul's home church, remember was at Antioch, he said this, and I quote, let no one do anything touching the church apart from the bishop. Meaning this, let no one do anything that affects the church or is related to the church apart from the bishop. Let that celebration of the Eucharist be considered valid which is held under the bishop or anyone to whom he has committed it. Where the bishop appears, there let, there let the people be just as where Christ is, there is the church. It is not permitted without authorization from the bishop either to baptize or to hold an agape, which is, uh, that's what they would call the, uh, the Lord's table, a love feast. It is not permitted without authorization from the bishop either to baptize or to hold an agape. Only what he approves is pleasing to God. End quote. So this was the belief of the early church. A Christian without a church is not a disciple of the king. 
If a person therefore claims to be saved yet was not saved in nor continues to belong to a legitimate church, then they are claiming a salvation outside King Jesus. My comment to that, good luck with that. But this is the kind of stuff we need to be telling people, right? Understand that if you believe you're a Christian and you're a Christian without the church, well, you are claiming a salvation outside of King Jesus. Number seven, a church without the king's authority. A church without the king's authority is a church overrun by Satan. This is a, really now just a, a, a continuation of what we see in six because the anticipated response is, well, I don't, again, need the church to be saved. The church doesn't have any power or authority. I can go into my room and I can get down on my knees and I can, I can say the prayer to Jesus and I can be saved. I don't even need baptism. I can do it all for myself. Churches don't have that kind of authority. Well, here's the way you need to respond to that. A church without the king's authority is a church overrun by Satan. A church without the king's authority is a church overrun by Satan. Where am I getting that from? Well, uh, a text you know, uh, but let's turn to it anyway. Matthew chapter 16, and let's uh, just go through it. What we're told there, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, you're the King, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're right. In other words, Peter, I am the King. You are the King, the Son of the living God. You're right about that, Peter. And I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock of authority, my kingly authority... You're right about that, and on that authority, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Unpacking that then into uh, four points here in our notes. Number one, here's what we're being told then. The church has been given the authority and power of Jesus' kingship. The church has been given the authority and power of Jesus' kingship. Again, going back to what uh, Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the king, with Jesus' response in verse 18. On this rock, on this authoritative and powerful foundation of my kingship, I again will build, I will establish my church. Which again tells us what? The church has been given the authority and power of Jesus' kingship. Number two, because of the church's kingly authority and power, the satanic forces that rule this world, 1 John 5, 19, the satanic forces that rule this world will not extend into her midst. Jesus calls them the gates of hell, which is just an idiomatic reference to the jurisdiction of one's rule. In this case, the rule of Satan. 
His rule shall not extend that far. It shall not prevail against it, it being the church. Satan's rule will not be able, in other words, to overrun the church because of this kingly authority and power that I've given to you. Satan, his rule, that rules the rest of the world, will not be able to overrun the church. Number three, Jesus calls this kingly authority and power given to his church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Going again back to verse 18, I will build my church and then into the beginning of verse 19, I will give you the keys. Who's the you? Again, it finds its antecedent in the church. I will build my church and I will give you, the church, the keys, these keys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Number four, what those keys, the king's authority and power, looks like is the ability to determine who receives forgiveness from God and who is no longer able, meaning able to receive forgiveness, i.e. those who are now apostate. That's what it looks like. So by binding, he's referring to those who are no longer able to receive forgiveness, those who are now apostate. So the declaration of apostasy has been given to the church as well as loosing the ability to forgive. And where am I getting this from? Again, you know the text, John 21, where we see Jesus now doing what he promised to do in giving this authority after his resurrection, just before he ascends back to heaven. Verse 21 of chapter 20. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. We know this from Matthew chapter 12 that what he's talking about there is not the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost in Acts 2. This is before then. Receive the Holy Spirit, the mantle of authority. Receive that authority. The very authority that I told you that I would give you. Receive it now. Before I ascend back to heaven, I give you that authority, my kingly authority and power And here's what that looks like. Here's the binding and loosing. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Verse 23. So that's the power of the keys. That's the kingly authority of Christ. And that's been given again to uh, the church. Hence the reason that... uh, We read in places like Matthew 18, 15 through 20, after two strikes with the witnesses, so 15 and 16 of those verses go together where uh, you first go to your brother and then you bring the witnesses, that's verse 16. Then you go to the church, so that's your two strikes. On the third, if you don't listen to the church, those with the power to bind you, you are to be treated as a tax collector and a Gentile. You are apostate. You are no longer a Christian. Uh, That coincides very nicely with what we read in Titus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, which is just an allusion to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, where it says uh, that you are to warn them twice, and after that, those who cause dissension, you're to have nothing more to do with them, being self-condemned, i.e. they are apostate. By the time the judgment has reached, the authority of the church, the kingly authority Of Jesus that now resides in the church, that person is considered to have reached their third strike and are now considered to be recognized or no longer recognized as a Christian. They're self-condemned or apostate. 
Hence the reason we are to have nothing more to do with them. A church, therefore, without such authority and power. So people say, oh, church doesn't have any power. Church doesn't have any authority. Well, a church without such power and authority, churches who deny they possess the ability to bind and loose, is a church where the gates of hell then can prevail. Is that not the conclusion we should draw? Because isn't that what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 16? Keeps the gates of hell from prevailing against us or over us. It's the fact that we do have this authority. It is the fact that we do have uh, this power. And so any church who denies that is a church where the gates of hell can prevail. They're essentially admitting that they go to a church overrun by Satan. In contrast, in contrast, A church possessing the king's authority and power is the safest place on planet earth. Here's the question. What kind of a church do you want to attend? See, these are the kinds of questions. This is our speech, right? With others. Do you really understand what you're saying when you say your church has no power? You're you're, you're saying that your church is overrun by Satan. What? What? What kind of a church do you want to attend? I I want to go to the safest place on planet earth. Which according to Jesus, based on who runs this world, the safest place is the place where he doesn't run. The church. With the power and authority of Jesus. You see, this is what we call changing the narrative. Taking something that's negative and showing how what... Others perceive to be negative is truly a positive. I'm glad that we exist in a church with the authority and power of Jesus. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Number eight. A church not practicing excommunication or declaring unrepentant people apostate. A church not practicing excommunication or declaring unrepentant people apostate is a church without the king's salvation. A church not practicing excommunication or declaring unrepentant people apostate is a church without the king's salvation. Here's another one that uh, people have a problem with, right? And we need to change the narrative on this. With respect to excommunication... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's break down that text. Or unpack it, rather. Verses 1 through 8. It is actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn or to become um, upset in order that the one who has done this be removed, notice, be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice, by the way, when you are assembled in the name of the uh, the Lord Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus. This was the church that had the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump 
as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A couple of points in relation to this particular text then. Number one, all forms of sexual immorality are a capital crime, hence the reason for no further detail in regard to what this man has done with his father's wife. So we're not told exactly what the crime is because it doesn't matter. All sexual immorality in Scripture has only uh, one punishment, and that is uh, uh, capital in nature. Under the New Covenant, capital crimes are now punished by excommunication or by temporarily removing them from their place of salvation and protection from God with the hope that this discipline will deliver them from the practice of such heinous sins, ensuring again their place on the path of salvation. Again, verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Excommunication. With verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that, here's the ultimate goal, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This, however, is not the only reason Paul demands such action be taken by the Corinthian church. It is also for their protection. Those covenant communities who refuse to take such disciplinary disciplinary measures will will be found guilty of the same sin. How do we know that? Again, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Who's the little leaven? This man in his sin. What's Paul saying? If you leave him in your congregation, you will leaven the whole lump. Everybody now will be guilty of this man's sin. What we call guilt by association. And this we see in places like 2 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Hence the reason Paul says, it's not good. Do you not understand what's happening? By tolerating this in your congregation. Hence the reason Paul calls us to cleanse out the old leaven and to celebrate the festival of Christ, our Passover lamb, not with the old leaven, i.e. to bar these individuals now guilty of malice and evil against their king, from the covenant-ratifying sacrament of the Lord's table, the new Passover. How then to respond to those who question our church's practice of excommunication, right? People are like, well, I don't know that I want to go to your church. You kick people out for capital crimes. Here's the way you need to respond. Here's the change in the narrative. We practice excommunication because we want to give our people the best chance of being delivered from their sins and getting to heaven without jeopardizing the salvation of the rest of the church. Possibly followed by, does your church not care about its people? With respect to declaring unrepentant people apostate, unrepentant people, keep peace there, right? Unrepentant people apostate. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Fifteen through 21, do your best, Paul says to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble. Irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved past tense from the truth, literally have fallen away, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Again, unpacking our text. What are we being told by this uh, phrase up here? Uh, again, in relation to Hymenaeus and company who have swerved from the truth. Those who have swerved from the truth. Verse 18, gone apostate, as I told you, swerved from the truth. Who have fallen away. They have fallen away. They've gone apostate. Hymenaeus was already excommunicated for prior blasphemy. We know that from 1 Timothy Paul's first letter in verses 19 through 20, we're told about those who have shipwrecked their faith. And Paul has put them under a discipline for that blasphemy to teach them not to blaspheme. And yet they have continued in this. Hymenaeus has continued actions or refusal to repent sealed his fate. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we continue to go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. As a result, he and his new partner, in his first epistle, it's Hymenaeus and Alexander. We're told more about him in chapter 4 of this epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 4. But as it relates to his new partner, he has another partner in crime, Philetus. He and his new partner were to be permanently avoided so as to stop their apostasy, in this case, their blasphemous talk about the resurrection already taking place from spreading, as he says, like gain green and infecting or damning the rest of the church. Only through cleansing ourselves from such people can we remain useful, verse 21, to the master and ready for every good work. As already mentioned, those covenant communities who refuse to take such disciplinary measures to purge the evil person from among them will be found guilty of the same sins. In other words, they become a church no longer able to offer its members salvation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus warns the church at Ephesus in this way. He talks about them having abandoned the love they had at first, or their first love, meaning you have abandoned your loyalty to the king. And how are they doing that? By refusing to do what he said. And here's Jesus' warning, repent. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand. The lampstand is uh, uh, this term that is used there in Revelation. Uh, the lampstand was, uh, it's referring to is the, the one in the tabernacle or the temple. That lampstand that uh, symbolized God's relationship with Israel. His presence in the temple and the tabernacle that uh, represented their salvation. And Jesus is saying, I will remove that. If you don't do what I say. How then to respond to those who question our church's practice of declaring unrepentant persons apostate? Why would we jeopardize the salvation of those who have hope for those who have no hope? 
Why would we do that? Final piece. And I think there are plenty of contexts where uh, if you learn this, this will become useful for you in having an impact for our king. Not welcome to the king, not welcome to us. Not welcome to the king, not welcome to us. We saw this in the sermon that I titled, Welcome to God. Not everyone who is welcome to God or worthy to receive his gospel offer. Not everyone is welcome to God or worthy to receive his gospel offer. <gasps> Do you live in America? Right? Yeah, I live in America, but I follow the king, his precepts, not the opinions or the preferences of people in America. And according to Jesus, not everyone is welcome to God. For example, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, do not give what is holy to hogs and dogs. Well, it takes identifying who the hogs and the dogs are, but at the very least, there is a group of people who are not welcome to hear the gospel. What is holy? Do not give. In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus uh, sends out his disciples into uh, the neighboring villages, he says, you preach this gospel, and if they don't receive it, kick the dust off your sandals and leave. You're not welcome to God. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist in his preaching, when the Pharisees and others come to him to be baptized, he says, who, who warned you to escape from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. You're not welcome to God. Not everyone is welcome to God. More than that, to waste our time with such people will wreck our relationship with God. To waste our time with such people will wreck our relationship with God. 2 Corinthians, a text that uh, you should be familiar with, but I'm going to turn there again. Anyway, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It makes no sense to Paul, according to these verses, and should therefore make no sense to us, that anyone who truly loves the king would want to be yoked, have a portion in or fellowship with an unbeliever, seeing that they exist in partnership or accord, i.e. loving relationship, with Belial, a.k.a. Satan. If we therefore don't want to wreck our relationship with God, then we must go out from their midst and be separate from them. Only then will God be our God and us his people. Notice, it is indeed conditional. Again, verse 17, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then 
I will welcome you. It is indeed conditional. Conditional. Does this mean we don't want to reach unbelievers for Christ or can't associate with them? No. It takes us then to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my letter, Paul says, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all mean the sexually immoral of this world, the unbeliever. Notice here, though the word is not fellowship, but associate, or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. According to Paul, we can and should associate with unbelievers as the means to evangelism and seeing whether they are welcome to God. However, however, in respect to false Christians, who are false Christians, those claiming to be a brother or a follower of our God, yet living in sinful rebellion and darkness, not even association is allowed. Who are those people living in sinful rebellion? Well, if they don't agree with what you believe to be the gospel, they fit into that category. Are you getting that? Are you connecting those dots? Which means in your conversations with them, you need to tell them that. What you believe is a false gospel and you're going to go to hell if you don't listen to what I have to say. And if they won't listen, if they won't listen, get what Paul says, no association, not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one. We are to instead judge them. And again, here is that, uh, that phrase about purging the evil person. Something that is oft repeated in the Old Testament. We are to purge the evil from our life. That's what he means by not even eating with such a one. Even that menial thing of eating food with someone. We're to purge them from our life completely, not even eating a meal with that person. And this way we judge them, we purge them. Since by their actions they show they serve a false king. That's verse 13. God judges those outside, but those inside, notice verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, those who claim to be in the church? Purge the evil person from among you. How then? Should we respond to those who question this practice? Not welcome to the king, not welcome to us. Why would we want to wreck our relationship with God by spending time with people who hate him and are in a loving relationship with Satan, darkness, and idolatry? Because anybody who's not going right back to where we started, who's not serving the king, is serving Satan. Why would I want to wreck my relationship with the king? For somebody who's in a loving relationship with Satan. Let's pray. Father, thank you that 
We've had time to go through this, and I pray that those verses that we didn't take the time to look at, that your people would again go back to all of what's here in these notes, that they would learn them, look up the extra verses, and become equipped to do what's required by you to take the time to be equipped with what they've been given so that they can have an impact in the world for you. And I pray that these things would be used in that way, Lord, to advance your kingdom, to advance the kingdom of our King. Make it so we pray in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.